Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do stop by yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And we're back in action, everybody. Another great episode lined up for you this week. Uh, Leslie will be swinging by with a fresh off the press edition of the Geology Corner where we talk about extinction level events, to quote Busta. That's right. Good edition. It's going to be really cool. There's going to be some mention of dinosaurs. Who doesn't like dinosaurs? Even that old annoying show with the baby with the frying pan i like that too uh but dinosaurs will be involved we'll hear about that uh as promised i teased it last week i have the full interview with exploration insights analyst brent cook coming up a little bit later in the show runs about 15 minutes uh brent and i will sit down to talk a little bit about uh trends in junior markets um and that will include things like share structures dilution uh we'll talk a little bit about greenfield exploration um and it, funny enough i asked brent one of the same questions i asked mickey fault the mercenary geologist previously about innovation in geology uh, and his answer is hilarious so wait for that it's it's a good it's a good answer um uh and that segment's really uh really insightful as far as sort of what uh what brent's looking at in terms of junior markets right now and where he thinks we sort of are in the cycle so that's a really good segment we'll run that a bit later uh leslie's geology corner will be coming up shortly uh before we do that however let's just really quickly touch base with macro we are in as they quote unquote call them the summer doldrums so we're keeping our eye on metal prices and some of those equities to see uh, if we follow the typical patterns as far as uh, the summer trading months, uh, which everyone is probably quite familiar with who's been in the industry for any length of time. Uh, gold has actually been on a run recently. Uh, we are trading at $1,296.80 per ounce at the time of recording, uh, creeping up on that $1,300 per ounce level. As uh, We've heard a little bit of uh, more dovish um, commentary out of the Fed. Uh, they may not be looking quite so. Uh, aggressively at rate increases apparently based on recent U.S. job reports. So uh, some stuff we can watch there as well as we know uh, Trump's all over the world uh, meeting with, uh, well, he was in the Middle East recently. Uh, he has been tweeting uh, significantly and uh, getting into uh, Twitter battles with London's mayor over the unfortunate incident in Manchester. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, mixed, volatile sociopolitical factors going on that has driven gold up over the interim. Silver similarly has been up. It's at 1770 per ounce. Uh, at the time of recording, meanwhile, copper has been stuck in a holding pattern at about 250 per share, uh, 250 per pound. Sorry, per share. Uh, it is at two dollars and 54 cents per pound at the time of recording. Well, West Texas Intermediate crude oil was trading at 47 dollars and 98 cents per barrel. Now, the big thing that's coming up in June here, people might have heard about this. We covered this briefly on the podcast in a previous episode. It is the Van Eck rebalancing of the GDXJ on June 17th, and now. We have seen uh, this has severely impacted some of the evaluations on market juniors, like impressively so. Um, and uh, we've been watching this sort of happen as we uh, creep up on the official date of the rebalance. Um, I got a note from BMO recently, uh, and BMO Capital Markets said there will be a quote unquote massive rebalance trade uh, around the ETF um, alteration in June. Um, that's uh, in, due to the fact they're rebalancing to incorporate some larger cap companies, which means they have to sell off some of the uh, current holdings to accommodate the new names. Um, and BMO has calculated uh, that the VanEck ETF will need to sell $3 billion worth of its existing holdings to buy the new additions to the uh, index. So uh, we've been watching this sort of happen. It's been um, moderately 
well, terrifying, I'm sure, for a lot of people, fascinating academically. Um, a lot of these companies, uh, TD, I think, basically, uh, recently put out a, uh, a chart where they looked at all the uh, uh, Global Junior Gold Miners Index weighting decreases uh, coming up to June 16th. Uh, and uh, some of these numbers are fairly impressive uh, in, in not a good way. Um, some of the companies, for instance, uh, you may have seen some of your, your favorite gold uh, equities uh, go down, especially considering we're now looking at... Uh, at 1300 per ounce gold almost one of the um one of the stocks that i have spoken with a lot of people about is actually standstorm gold the streaming company uh which has seen a significant amount of volume coming out of uh the rebalance announcement and it's been interesting to watch um and and see where this is all going to end up uh as we mentioned uh when this announcement was made by vanek it, it's moderately interesting because they call it a junior gold miners etf but they're getting less and less like like that's that's gonna be sort of false advertising it's it's a gold <laughs> like it's definitely a gold affiliated or precious metal affiliated uh, i find it difficult to qualify or quantify or qualify it as a uh junior gold mining etf so uh, we'll watch as this comes up that's the day june 17th uh we're watching as uh this rebalancing of of the small cap precious metal community uh is really relatively unprecedented so we're, we're watching this in real time sort of happen uh as this uh the demand is just has was apparently so high uh for the uh junior gold miner um a product that Vanek uh, has been forced to uh, rebalance. So it's an interesting one. I never in my uh, experience seen something quite like it. Uh, so we've been keeping our eyes on that moving forward. Uh, the other thing that might have come across the ticker this week, uh, there was a pair of agreements announced. Uh, the first was was the uh, rather large deal. I shouldn't say rather, large deal uh, between Cisco Gold Royalties and Orion Mine Finance. Uh, this was a uh, whopping uh, $1.1 billion deal wherein Cisco picked up a uh, portfolio of uh, royalties, offtakes, and streams from Orion Mine Finance uh, for $675 million in cash plus $450 million in shares. Uh, this portfolio includes six streams, 61 royalties, and seven offtake agreements. Uh, Cisco claims the uh, transaction will boost its producing assets from 15 to 16, but more importantly, uh, it is expected to transform the company into a 100,000 plus ounce gold equivalent producer, uh, thanks to three new um, streams that are, are, are described as cornerstone assets, those being a 9.6% stream on Stornoway Diamonds, Renard Diamond Mine in the James Bay region, uh, a 4% gold and silver stream on Pretium's Bruce Jack Mine in northwestern BC, and a 100% silver stream on the Mantos Blancos Copper Mine in Chile, which uh, Anglo-American actually sold uh, to Audley Capital and Orion uh, for around $300 million back in 2015. Uh, so these are uh, three assets that are going to really boost the Cisco's uh, production and cash flow profile, uh, uh, hypothetically. We'll see. I'm assuming it works out the way they say it's going to work out. Uh, this also included uh, Orion now owns... Um, a significant share position in the Cisco, obviously, about 19.7%. Uh, the transaction involved Orion receiving around 31 million of Cisco Gold Royalty shares priced at 14.56 each. So it will be interesting to see uh, where that relationship sort of evolves moving forward. Uh, if people aren't familiar with Orion, uh, it is sort of a, a not necessarily a spin out but an offshoot of Red Kite Mine Finance. Um, mining, I guess, financier Oscar Lenowski uh, founded Red Kite. Um, and then uh, I think it was 2015, they decided to sort of uh, part ways and he started Orion, uh, which is now managing about $3 billion uh, in capital. Um, so they've done a lot of really big deals recently. Um, obviously, they were involved in a lot of the uh, streaming deals we mentioned, like uh, Storing Away Pretty 
Stadium. Uh, they have uh, uh, worked on a lot of the project uh, project facilities to build those mines. Um, the other thing that they've recently done is they put uh, a significant uh, financing package together for both Lundy and Gold's uh, Fruta del Norte development. That was in the range of $225 million U.S. Uh, they also helped put together a financing package for Leah Gold Mining. That's Neil Woodyear and Frank Juster, who just picked up the Los Feliz mine off Gold Corp. Uh, that financing package from Orion was about $200 million. So it's interesting for me to see this happen. I, it's in, like one question I'd like to ask them is uh, like they're selling these streams and royalties and offtakes right as about they're about to cash flow a lot of them significantly so. Uh, so it's interesting to see them uh, opt to uh, place them into a vehicle like a Cisco. Obviously, they're taking nearly a 20% stake, um, but they're also getting a lot of uh, a lot of cash. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that Orion's obviously going to be looking at its next generation of investments in terms of project finance and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see where that money ends up going um, and also how this evolves moving forward because it was it's a very interesting business model where they put packaged up all these royalties and streams. Uh, and from what I gathered on the conference call, um, the uh, Orion uh, rep said it was a pretty uh, fierce bidding war for this package, which you can imagine. I mean, we're talking... Uh, in, in so much as we're talking a significant amount of gold equivalent production uh, in play. Um, and uh, Sean Rosen, who's uh, president and I think CEO of Cisco, I can, the Cisco group, I, I kind of get confused with their roles because they move around. But yeah, CEO, Sean's the CEO of Cisco Gold. Um, he said on the calls uh, that they, they pursued this deal with prejudice. And a lot of the uh, analysts have noted that they're now going to be sort of a, a major streaming company. So they're up there with the big uh, the big guys now with uh, that growth profile. Wherein uh, I think the the report said that they'll be at about 140,000 ounces of gold equivalent production per annum by 2023, assuming some of their growth and development projects come through. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see uh, where the Cisco Gold Royalties model goes, and also if they have any sort of. Uh, uh, ongoing business relationships with Orion Mine Finance. It'll be very, very intriguing to see because uh, we know that they have uh, some development projects underway with them working on Windfall Lake, uh, Falco Resources, and the um, other projects that they've been working on are sort of under the similar umbrella. So we'll see where that goes in terms of potential financings and partnerships moving forward. Speaking of which, the other deal that was announced recently, uh, actually today, <laughs> was uh, I Am Gold announced a strategic agreement with Sumitomo Metal Mining uh, for the development of its Cote Gold uh, project. Project in Ontario. Um, and under this one, uh, Sumitomo will acquire 30% undivided participating joint venture interest in uh, in the gold project for approximately $195 million, uh, wherein uh, $100 million is payable upon closing. Uh, so this one's interesting. Um, they also simultaneously released a feasibility on, on this uh, on this project. Uh, big project. Uh, initial capital expenditures are about $1 billion. Uh, we're talking about uh, mine life of 17 years. Uh, mill throughput of 32,000 tons per Day, uh, so they've entered into uh, essentially a JV with uh, with Sumitomo to uh, work on this project, uh, which will be interesting. So I haven't actually had a chance to sit down and listen to the conference call on this yet. That is next up on the docket for me today. Uh, I'll have some more uh, in-depth uh, observations on it for you next week, but. Uh but let's get cracking with a little bit of geology corner here because I'm pretty excited. Uh, as mentioned, this uh, this week's edition deals with extinction events, um, and uh, I'm pretty pretty excited to listen to it as well. So uh, we'll get right into that, and uh, I will see you after the break to uh, quickly uh, intro my conversation with analyst Brent Cook. Most people think of mass extinctions, 
Their thoughts go straight to giant asteroids slamming into the earth and starving dinosaurs dying in troves, massive kilometer-high tsunamis, right? Surging across continents, scraping away all life. And I'd hate to strip Hollywood of its most profitable musings, but our ever-so-endearing tendency to sensationalize the end sadly precedes scientific reasoning. So in this week's Geology Corner, I thought I was going to discuss the real reasons behind five of Earth's largest mass extinctions and how we can use the past to predict our future. For a bit of a backgrounder, everything we know about the evolution of life on the planet is due largely in part by paleontologists, whom are essentially biology-loving geologists, I say, that dig for ancient forms of life in the rocky remains of Earth's 4.6 billion-year-old history. So as their fossil collection grew, so did our tree of evolution, at least our understanding of it. But paleontologists were quickly began to notice that there was something not quite right. They noticed that at five distinct periods in Earth's history, whole branches of that evolutionary tree were like catastrophically lopped off. And during these periods, the population of life forms in the rock record drastically collapsed by 75%. And in some really harsher circumstances, life was almost eliminated altogether. So like criminal detectives hunting for the murder suspect, teams of Earth scientists have turned to the rocks that were deposited immediately before, during, and after these events, just trying to figure out like what exactly happened. So the question is, of course, in this week's podcast, what did they discover? Well, let's dig into the Earth's five largest mass extinctions, also known as the Big Five, and see what was uncovered. Let's do a little countdown. Number one, the late Ordovician event, guys, 439 million years ago. In the Ordovician, the Earth's continents assembled into this massive supercontinent called Gondwana. And vast mountain ranges towered the skies as the continents smashed into each other. And at the same time, the ocean began to teem with like really exceptionally diverse organisms for the first time. And everything was going splendidly well until temperatures on Earth plummeted and 86% of life was wiped off the face of the Earth. So what caused it? Scientists actually believe that the massive mountain ranges actually triggered a change in the chemical composition of our atmosphere. You see, as mountains erode, the material being shed off um, actually sucks CO2, a common greenhouse gas, out of the atmosphere, and that would have triggered a, glaci a glacial ice age. An interesting side point, too, you know, when the Himalayas went up 30 million years ago, that was when Antarctica actually glassed over in ice. So interesting side note. But anyway, back in the Ordovician, um, with like a glacial ice age, obviously all the plants on the continents would not have fared very well. And as the global sea levels dropped, marine organisms lost a lot of their ecosystems and so they would have suffered as well. Now, that being said, the actual magnitude of extinction in the Ordovician is tricky to estimate. The organisms that existed back then might not have easily been preserved as they are today because of the composition of their shells or the conditions may not have been that ripe for proper burial. So when you're looking at the rock record, a sudden lack of fossils may be more attributed to other factors and not just the mass extinction. Number four, the late Devonian extinction at 372 million years ago. 
By the late Devonian, life rebounded. The land was colonized by plants and insects, and whereas oceans were had massive coral reefs, it was quite lovely, I'm sure. Uh, but by the end of it, in the late Devonian, the oceans became really acidic, and 75% of life on Earth was obliterated. But the scientists aren't exactly sure what caused it. Some believe that the proliferation of land plants with super deep roots during the Devonian may have released a ton of nutrients into the ocean, and that in turn could have triggered vast algal blooms, which would have depleted the seeds of oxygen and, and thus life and changing everything else, I suppose. But, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, maybe Hollywood also borrowed this idea of killer plants and spun it into their awesome 1978 film, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, uh, which, by the way, you should totally watch or at least YouTube it, might be as interesting as, as all the mass extinction movies put out for the dinosaurs. Number three, the Permian disaster, aka the Great Dying. 251 million years ago, the Permian disaster was the most catastrophic extinction event to have ever occurred on Earth. 97% of all life was wiped off the planet. And it was actually triggered by massive outpourings of basalt in Siberia, which covered like 2 million square kilometers, so roughly equal to the size of Western Europe by area alone. And so the greenhouse gases from the volcanism jacked up global temperatures, and the oceans became acidic because oceans absorb carbon dioxide, try to balance everything out. And the ozone layer was damaged, and acid fell from the skies, and, and everything was just brought to its knees, including insects. So it's actually really devastating to think of it, but I guess the word the great dying really sets a morbid mood. And some believe, too, that these mass outpourings of flood basalts, they're called actually, um, might have been triggered by asteroids kind of like hitting into the earth and that causing a stir up of, of mantle plumes in, in the, um, in the mantle and then they just flood out into the surface. And some common day examples of flood basalts occurring today would be, you know, Hawaii or, um, in Iceland, but, you know, they're relatively small compared to some of these huge outpourings that occurred uh, in the past, which would have caused these mass extinction events. So that's kind of interesting to think about too. Number two, the Triassic to Jurassic extinction, 199 and 214 million years ago. So life took a long time to recover from the Permian disaster, as you can imagine, considering that a whole whack of branches off that tree was lopped off. And there were prolonged periods of inhospitable conditions, like excessively hot greenhouse conditions, and the oceans were, didn't have much oxygen, and it was pretty crazy. But eventually it shifted, and life seriously exploded with the start of, oh, get this, archosaurs. And there are the ancestors of dinosaurs. So the awesomeness, though, was short-lived, as flood basalts once again poured onto four of the Earth's continents around 200 million years ago, and that triggered a four-degree rise in global temperatures. So the oceans became acidic again because it was absorbing too much CO2, and both life on land and in the oceans perished. But fortunately, archosaurs evolved, survived, and, and evolved into dinosaurs, which we all know and love. And number one... The mass extinction that everybody is familiar about, the KT boundary, 65 million years ago, 76% of all life died, including the dinosaurs. 
So the dinosaurs survived for about 150 million years, right? Until an asteroid about 10 kilometers in diameter, they think, crashed into the Yucatan Peninsula. Sorry if I don't pronounce that right. In Mexico, and it, anyway, it shrouded the planet with like sunlight blocking dust, eventually killing 76% of all life. Although uh, most scientists are super confident with the asteroid theory, the impact also coincided with another great outpouring of flood basalts, the Deccan Traps in West Central India, which were over two kilometers thick across 500,000 square kilometers, so extremely huge. The demise of the dinosaurs, of course, was a boon for mammals, including humans, and life eventually evolved into how we know it today. However, scientists are warning that the Earth has entered into its sixth mass extinction, called the Holocene. And sorry to say, guys, but humans are sadly to blame. Now, before I continue, I don't want to lose you here, because this is not going to be your typical rant about global warming or how humans are terrible creatures and we're behaving so unnaturally, blah, blah, blah. I'm far too positive to believe in that hype, and I've got some interesting points to make, so please bear with me. The, um, well, as we know, population of mankind is booming, and it's pretty obvious that our vast consumption of Earth's resources have undoubtedly transformed the surface of Earth. Thousands of species have gone extinct at our own hand, and global warming is threatening Earth's future once again. But when you look at Earth's history, let's not forget, we're not the first species to cause mass extinctions. Even before the Ordovician, there were huge extinctions brought about by the cyanobacteria during the Great Oxygenation event 2.3 billion years ago, which I spoke about in a previous podcast, so check it out. But it's um, but the really extraordinary thing about humans is that we're the first species to be consciously aware of the impact we're having on the planet, or at least <laughs> capable of becoming conscious of it, which is what we're all trying to do today. And Charles Darwin, he used to talk about the evolution on Earth being you know, controlled by the survival of the fittest. But I would like to argue that we've gone kind of far beyond that now, and life is now balanced on survival of the consciousness. So if consciousness wins out and we make efforts to reduce our impact on planet Earth, then we're going to lean towards diversifying our energy base and technologies, and they'll become more efficient and more compact than ever. So you can call me a little Freelandian, if that's a word I'd like to call it after Robert Freeland, but this shift in mankind would bode exceptionally well for energy and technology metals like lithium and cobalt, graphite, rare earth elements. Now, on the other end, if we lose the battle of consciousness, well, then what odds? The earth will continue on as it always has done, and whatever branch on the tree that survives will finally have its turn under the sun until, of course, the sun consumes the planet about, you know, 7.5 billion years from now. But I guess that's for another podcast another day. Anyway, thanks for listening in to this week's edition of the Northern Miners Geology Corner. Hope you learned a lot about the past and maybe a little bit about the future. Speak to you next week. Welcome back to studio. Uh, thanks again to Leslie for putting that together. It was awesome. I learned so much. 
and I also enjoy anything that's that's in reference to dinosaurs. I'm not going to lie, I'm a bit of a sucker for dinosaurs. You might have got that impression. Anyway, <laughs> let's get on to some investing. Um, we're going to crack into uh, my full segment with uh, Brent Cook from Exploration Insights, uh, which I recorded last week at the uh, International Metal Writers Conference. Uh, as mentioned, uh, I read a little preview of this last week. You might have caught uh, about a three to five minute snippet of it. Um, so I'm going to run the full unabridged uh, edition of this sit down I had with Brent. Uh, it runs just about 15 minutes. Uh, and uh, as mentioned, we get into uh, quite a few topics, including uh, things like equity dilution, uh, greenfield exploration, uh, innovation in exploration, etc., etc. Um, so yeah, let me run this and uh, I will quickly be back after the break to uh, just wrap up the show. Today, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Brent Cook from Exploration Insights. Thanks so much for joining us, Brent. My pleasure. Um, so uh, we're, uh, we're down here in Vancouver at the International uh, Letter Writers Conference. Um, and uh, one of the things I noticed as we walked in was a tagline that said, Junior Mining is back. And I'm, so I'm sort of asking everyone, A, do you agree with that? And B, sort of where do you see the junior markets now? Well, the entrance to a junior mining conference is certainly going to not going to put junior mining is dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I think I think we are seeing some positive momentum. It slacked off over the past few months, but uh, it certainly has picked up from a, a year and a half ago. And my expectation is that it will slowly improve into the next few years. Um, I'm basically, and I talked about this yesterday at my, on my speech, but uh, we are we are in desperate, as an industry, desperate need of new deposits. Yeah. And that's a positive. Yeah. And I think you've seen that recently with some of the activity from the majors in terms of investing in more earlier stage projects. Um, and so from your point of view, uh, as someone who's sort of an observer and investor, obviously, in the business, I mean, what are you sort of looking at right now in terms of, of junior opportunity? Well, in, in our newsletter, we've Joe and I have kind of bifurcated uh, what we're doing. I mean, we, we, we're buying a package of uh, mid-tier companies that are getting bounced off the GDXJ just oh, as a short-term right. play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're doing that as right now, but what we're really after is early-stage discoveries um, mm -hmm. that got a shot of being high-margin enough and big enough to attract uh, a major. That's yeah. what we're really looking for because I know that's where the money is going to be made. But this is early-stage. Like I'm off to Nevada in a couple of weeks to look at... Uh, someone with some bleg samples that looked interesting, yeah. and uh, some veins that uh, you know looked like they might be much more than they originally thought. So, yeah. you know, real early stage stuff is what we're really after. For investors that might be listening, when you're looking at earlier stage stuff, what are some of the things that you sort of identify as as promising in terms of uh, maybe soils or, like you said, I guess it depends on the region, right? So, it, yeah, it's yeah. real. De it depends on what the deposit model is you're looking at mm -hmm. um, let's say I'm looking um, the one of the ones I'm looking at is a Carlin style system yeah. and it's almost all undercover mm -hmm. but there's probably some outcrop and this outcrop uh, hopefully is that it, the, the gold anomalies that we're seeing are draining from this outcrop of Paleozoic rocks that's yeah. never been looked at before mm -hmm. uh, if that's the case if I can go down there and, and verify that yes this is Paleozoic carbonates that are bleeding off this anomaly mm -hmm. it gets really really interesting yeah. but you're not going to know that until you walk the ground and look at it yeah um i'm off to japan uh, later oh, this japan. month wow. to look at a couple of pro uh, companies as well and there we're looking for high-grade epithermal systems that yeah. really haven't been tested and by and large we're probably at the upper parts of the system so i need to see the right sort of uh, clay alteration 
trace element geochemistry, that sort of thing. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, it sort of segues into um, what we've just talked about, but in, in your presentation yesterday, you mentioned a lot of discoveries are being made undercover now, mm -hmm. um, and you've also sort of mentioned that there's new ways of looking at old deposits like your, and districts and stuff like that. So is that something that you're sort of seeing as a trend coming out these days? Like if you're looking at what's happening in Committee Bay or, or some of the Arctic greenstones and stuff, right? Like, Certainly looking yeah. at deposits in, in a different light. Mm -hmm. um, I, I visited with a company yesterday who uh, turned the drill around 180 degrees yeah. and it turned out that they were hitting, you know, they were drilling the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So now what was some, what they thought was disseminated mineralization is in fact a bunch of narrow high-grade veins that have been stacked that they were yeah. hit and miss. Yeah. So looking at it in different perspective that way, mm -hmm. similar to what Integra did, really. Yeah. Um, that's certainly one would look at. But really, it's it's stuff that's undercover, mm -hmm. or you're at the upper levels of the system where you're just seeing the edges of it, mm -hmm. and you've got to interpret where where the guts of it might be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's that's really where the, it's gonna where the big discoveries are gonna be. And, and a lot of the sort of discussion in our industry has been about you've heard the term disrupt mining and all that sort of stuff and, and people are now talking about maybe not only new ways but new technologies. And I was wondering if there's anything you've seen out there in terms of exploration that you might see as <laughs> being beneficial moving forward or is it just based on really good practical science still? Yeah, new technology is in my opinion the new technology that needs to be brought back is old school, boots on the ground, uh, geologists' eyes, uh, hand-drawn maps, that sort of thing. What what we're losing now is is that sort of connection with the rocks. I, I go to too many properties and too many presentations where, you know, you got this map in quotation marks with a bunch of different colored blobs, but that's all been computer generated. There's no data detail on it. Yeah. And that's being lost. Yeah. You know, you need an outcrop map with a guy. The mo when I was, you know, when I was doing a lot of mapping, just the, the drawing a line on a map, a contact that you mapped, that's a huge, that, that takes a lot of brain work. And if you give that to a computer, you've lost everything. And uh, yeah, and you've lost, there is, I, I mean, people don't say it too often, but there is an element of creativity in geology, right? Most definitely. This, yeah. this is one thing that, um, artificial intelligence is not going to be able to do better than man. Yeah, yeah, yeah especially. And then uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Brent, uh, while I had you here, was um, uh, in terms of commodities, I mean, um, we've, we've heard a little bit of a you know, buzz about zinc recently. Um, I know you guys have uh, spoken to me in the previously about Tinker Resources and a few other companies you cover in that space. Um, but, but broadly, I mean, in terms of base and precious, how are you guys looking at opportunities now in terms of uh, where you'd like to be? If you could find that property that you're that you're after, we're more or less commodity indifferent. Um, certainly, precious metals, zinc, copper are high on the list. Uh, but really, it's all about a high-margin deposit that someone's going to buy, and that's what we're really after. Um, we're, we're really not in the uranium space right now. I think that's got a ways to go. Uh, we've kind of didn't jump on lithium, graphite, or cobalt. Um, but certainly the metals, that, and that's where that's where you got to be because that's what someone's going to buy. I've heard a lot about cobalt recently, and it's interesting because you don't see very much of it. And I've actually had people come up to me at the show and be like, "Do you know any cobalt properties?" And I'm like, "Well, not primary cobalt properties, but I mean, where do you when you say cobalt? Obviously, um, where would you even look? Like, well, what sort of deposits would you look at that would have cobalt? Mm -hmm. in? Well, Joe wrote this up a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. um, and. 
most of the cobalt is a byproduct of the Zambian copper mines, Zambian and uh, Congo mines. So there's primary cobalt mines. There's not that many around. And I know there's, you know, some of the stocks have done really well, and this is the cobalt's the new graphite or whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, but again, it's not it's not something we're really spending much time on. You said, um, you know, you're looking for those opportunities because obviously the majors are out there sniffing around, signing a lot of CAs and all that stuff. Um, so does that sort of geographically constrain you? Because you've seen a lot of the majors a sort of flight from risk from them. So are you sort of also pulling back a little bit from some of those jurisdictions that might be viewed as socially, politically risky? No. No? No. Um, I mean, there's places we won't go for sure. Yeah. But uh, just, what, two weeks ago, we had a 350% gain on... Um, Mariana Resources, yeah. which Sandstorm bought. You know, Turkey, uh, 30% owner, 70% Turkish partner, et cetera, et cetera. And it just comes down to quality. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, that was an interesting deal, though. I mean, a streaming company buying a property like that, you think, is there anything, because I know you've covered Sandstorm in the past and, and spoken about them. Um, in that streaming model, do you think that that is going to be as vibrant as we've seen the last maybe bit of the cycle moving forward here? Or? Well, I think what the Sandstorm acquisition of Mariana tells you is that it is really hard to find a good streaming deal. Yeah. And I know, you know, there's, I don't know how many small companies out there looking for royalty and streaming deals and that, but the fact is there's not that many out there. And if it's a good deposit, it's unlikely someone's going to do a streaming deal. They'll get, they'll get bank financing. Yeah. You know, streaming deal is sort of almost your last resort if you're going to build a mine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's sort of like rebranded hedging almost, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, sort of, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, the other last thing, Brent, I just wanted to ask you was, um, uh, Joe and you had both mentioned to me uh, that you'd, you'd been looking at the ASX recently, um, almost maybe more so than the Toronto exchanges. Um, and I was just wondering if that's still sort of the strategy and, and how you're viewing markets globally uh, sort of thing right now. You know, both Joe and I have lived and worked in Australia and we've got a lot of contacts there. Yeah. Um, and I like a lot of companies down there, but it's, I would say we're probably never going to own more than three to five ASX listed companies because it is difficult to follow. You're always, you know, a day behind in news plus a week behind what's happening in the pub. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, on the terrace. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So we own one, two, three Australian listed companies right now, uh, Gold Road, Hammer, and Alicanto. Um, we've done well in the past on some Australian stocks with like Papillon, and we've had some disasters as well. So I think it's gotta be pretty special to make it. And I wanted to bring up dilution because to my eyes, coming out of this last cycle where obviously companies had to dilute a little bit more due to low share prices and tough market conditions, it seems like a lot of these juniors now aren't overly concerned with their dilution as much as maybe they would have been previously. And I'm just wondering sort of where you stand on, on companies that are getting large share structures that are in exploration stage, and if you think that's going to be a trend or? Uh, I hope it's not a trend, yeah. uh, but certainly there are a lot of low-priced financings during the past three to four years that are hitting, you know, that have destroyed these companies. They're going to be, there are going to be a lot more rollbacks, I think, eventually. Um, and that, that is the issue in this, in this, and I talked about it in the, in the presentation, is, you know, if you're an exploration company, all the money goes out. Nothing comes in unless you raise more money. So you'd better 
as an investor, you'd better be into a company that understands that and has very hard uh, goals or hurdles that they need to reach in order to take the share price higher. Uh, and that's got to be based on positive geology. They got to be confirming to you that their concept is working. And it's what you enjoy always come back to is quality, is, is the asset quality. And, and that's interesting. So do you have, I always sort of had something in my mind, but like a company at a certain stage of evolution, say they have a resource or a discovery hole, do you look at, do you sort of have a threshold of shares outstanding you look at when they're at a certain stage of, of uh, you know, exploration or development? I, I always said you kind of want to make a discovery by 100 million, you kind of want to have a economic study by 152, you know, like, do you ever look at that and say, well, if you're over this amount, we have a problem with this. Well, given I own some Australian stocks, yeah. I, I can't say well, that anymore. That, yeah, yeah, but that's a different, that's a different investment. They, they, they are different there. Yeah, yeah. that's a different. Uh, I mean, certainly, I, I like, you know, company 25 million shares out. That's, that's yeah. good. But really, a lot of it comes down to is how well it's structured. Who owns it? Yeah. Has, has the placements been to people that are solid investors, or are they going to flip it after four months? Yeah. That's, you know, that's really what you've got to look at. I don't mind 100, 200 million shares out if it's, you know, it's a very tight uh, group of people that own it and understand what the program is and are there for the long term. That's, that's fine. So I can't say that, you know. Yeah. But certainly if I look at a, com a junior exploration company with 300 million shares out at three cents, yeah. I'm unlikely to follow it up much further. <laughs> I would hope investors in our business have caught that one by now. If you see that ever, maybe yeah. maybe run the other way. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'd like to once again thank Brent Cook from Exploration Insights for joining us on the Northern Miner broadcast. Thanks, Brent. Uh, thank you. Welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Brent Cook for taking the time to sit down and chat with me at the show. Uh, as always, insightful comments on the uh, state of junior markets. Uh, swing by uh, explorationinsights.com to see what uh, Brent and his partner Joe Mazumdar are doing uh, with their newsletter. Always some really, uh, really uh, interesting and uh, really valuable information coming from them. Um, so yeah, that was uh, pretty much been our show for the week. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to say is uh, the yearly Yukon Media Tour is coming up, and, and and boy am I excited! I've done this a number of times. Um, I was actually just on the phone with uh, some of my friends up there uh, and uh, we'll be heading up in mid-July so I'll be checking in on all these really cool Yukon projects. Uh, we've obviously seen a lot of the majors vending into these uh, so I'll be interested to see uh, sort of what the activity, you know, year on year what sort of changed uh, around Whitehorse and Dawson when I go up there uh, because now obviously Gold Corp's uh, very active at coffee. Uh, you have uh, uh, Attack and Barrick uh, now working uh, side by side at Rakla uh, so we're, uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of uh, just how much, uh, you know, how many birds are in the sky and uh, how hard it is to get a drill and, and things like that up there to see how much stuff's changed. I'm sure it's been great for the local economies. Uh, so so uh, wait for that. It's going to be really cool. As we did last year, I'll have some live audio uh, from site up there when I uh, when I go up there. Uh, I will be at the Dawson Conference uh, to sit down and chat with some of the companies and uh, newsletter writers and analysts who are on the trip. Uh, so it should be a great, uh, great little journey once again this year. So I uh, do look forward to that. Uh, probably the content will start rolling out uh, later in July. So we were about uh, uh, probably about six to eight weeks away from that. But I just want to give everyone a heads up because I am also excited. 
But thank you all again for joining us in our little corner of cyberspace here at the Northern Miner Podcast. As always, please do like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, check out our YouTube account, and please do rate this podcast on iTunes because it helps us a lot due to the archaic and often really strange way iTunes ranks podcasts. Uh, But once again, thanks for listening, and I am Matthew Kewell, and I will talk to you next week. (laughs) 